Hi, and welcome back to the China Business Review podcast. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. Rather than a single interview, today we're taking a deep dive into legislation surrounding the United States' relationship with Hong Kong. First, what exactly does the legislative landscape look like around the issue? And then, what does the future look like? What kind of attitudes about China are driving conversation and legislation on Capitol Hill? And last, what should businesses be focused on? This issue is complicated and multifaceted, so we sat down with three different experts. To start, let's have a look at the recently passed Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. So, what the legislation doesn't do is change the current status of the U.S. relationship with Hong Kong. It does, however, contain amendments to the U.S.-Hong Kong Policy Act, which could lead to a shift in the relationship. That is Shelley Sue. She's a senior consultant at Kroll and Mooring International, a policy and regulatory affairs consulting firm here in D.C. She sat down with my colleague Aaron Slauson this week to explain the legislative landscape around the U.S. relationship with Hong Kong. So essentially, there are three main parts of the legislation. The first part is the amendment to the original act. It now requires an annual certification from the Secretary of State. That certifies that Hong Kong continues to warrant special treatment from the United States. The report must address a number of elements, including commercial agreements, law enforcement cooperation, and Hong Kong's freedoms, judicial independence, and the like. The report is usually released at the end of March, so we have that to look forward to fairly soon if they maintain that schedule. This element is essentially Congress forcing the State Department to determine whether or not Hong Kong is sufficiently autonomous. If State Department certifies that it is, while seeing everything that's happening in Hong Kong right now, you could certainly see、um, a negative reaction from the Hill. If the State Department chooses not to certify, then that would naturally lead to questions of how the U.S. might change its relationship with Hong Kong、um, in the future. The second part of the legislation is a new annual report on export control violations in Hong Kong. It is due 180 days after signing, so probably in late May. This section is addressing the question of whether or not Hong Kong's openness is being utilized by China as a loophole to access technologies that it is not supposed to under U.S. export control laws. The content of reports like these are usually classified with a cover page that is unclassified, so I don't expect much of that report to be public. The final part of the legislation is the sanctioning of individuals who undermine fundamental freedoms and autonomy in Hong Kong by freezing their U.S.-based assets. And imposing visa bans for those in- individuals and possibly their family members, the president issued a signing statement along with signing the bill into law, which signaled that the executive branch intends to exercise its constitutional authority over foreign policy as it sees fit, notwithstanding the passage of the law. So reporting requirements are easier to pass into law compared to bills that fundamentally change laws. They also serve to send a message to the administration on how serious. An issue it is for Congress, and to get the administration to pay more attention to an issue. In my experience on the Hill, these reports can be rather bland by the time they are delivered to the committees of jurisdiction. The administration can be as detailed or as vague as they want to be, and can offer in-person briefings as a follow-up if the committees require more information. In essence, the Congress oftentimes lead, leaves the hard parts up to the administration. It sets up the broad guidelines. Of a direction of policy, and then forces the administration to figure out implementation. These are tough questions. How do we determine whether Hong Kong is sufficiently autonomous, 
and is it a binary answer? Or is there some nuance, and how is that to be handled when it comes to different elements of the U.S.-Hong Kong relationship? And most importantly, what does it ultimately mean for the people of Hong Kong? So if the State Department decides to go ahead and certify Hong Kong as autonomous, I think what you could see is a lot of scrutiny from senators and members at the determination, and perhaps the holding of additional hearings on Hong Kong as a follow-up to determine next steps. Okay, so it seems like number two and number three, um, from what you described, are the newer pieces. And it seems like the first part about the State Department having to certify Hong Kong's autonomy, that was already happening, right? It was already happening on an So there basis. was an annual report on Hong Kong that um, came out every year, but it didn't require the certification per se. It required okay. more a general assessment, but it wasn't, um, there was no certification requirement. So it's more, it's more formal. Yes. Right. And so, so I guess that would be one of the examples of, of Congress showing how important this issue is to them. So what kind of precedent is there in the past um, for Congress to use this type of legislation to send a message? In my experience on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, I would say this is fairly common when it comes to foreign policy. So much legislation is meant to make a point rather than to fundamentally change the law. For example, I would often send draft legislation to State Department for them to have a look over it and to give comments. And more often than not, they would come back and say, this is not necessary. We already have sufficient authorities to do this. And then in turn, Congress would go ahead and pass the law anyway to make a point to the administration and also to make a point to the public as well as to how important the issue is. So do you think the target for this for this particular piece of legislation is the administration? Is it China? Is it um, the people of Hong Kong? Maybe a mixture? I think it's all of the above. And how has China responded so far? By my estimation, I think China has responded with considerable restraint. In response, China suspended U.S. Navy port visits to Hong Kong. And this is nothing new. Media reports have said that they have been rejecting port call requests for months already, with six denials for Hong Kong in the past six months. There's a lot of legislation coming at China right now, and I think it is having to be rather measured in how it responds to each one. So if unrest in Hong Kong continues, do you see Congress taking further action, or do you see this legislation as um, being enough of an impetus for the administration to be the, the main party taking responsibility for responding? I think Congress will continue to watch the situation in Hong Kong very closely. Uh, leadership in both chambers have been very public on this issue, and I don't see that bipartisan support and attention for um, attention to Hong Kong ending anytime soon. Um, that being said, you know, ultimately the direction of Hong Kong, U.S. Hong Kong policy, really rests with the administration, and I think the next step for Congress is once the report comes out to then respond to that, probably by holding additional hearings and seeing if they're sufficiently satisfied with the administration's response. And who are, are the main players um, in Congress um, regarding Hong Kong right now? I think that the leadership in both chambers have been extraordinarily focused on the Hong Kong issue. You had um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell place a very prominent um, piece in the Wall Street Journal, I believe, on Hong Kong. And Speaker Nancy Pelosi has um, had a long history of focusing on um, human rights and economic issues in China. And she has really elevated um, these types of legislation 
um, in the past. So, I mean, for Hong Kong, I think it's all of the leadership. It's the leadership of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and um, the party leadership. It's really across the board. I've never seen so much um, broad support across Congress for, for an issue that really wasn't in the headlines just even you know, two or three years ago. All right, so that gives us an idea of what the current landscape looks like. What, what kind of bills are making the most impact? But from that landscape, what are the political implications? And what's likely to happen in the future? For that, we grabbed a colleague of Shelley's, who you just heard from. Let's jump in here with an idea of what the top three trends and attitudes towards China on Capitol Hill are. I would really categorize the top three trends related to China on the Hill as growing focus, growing scrutiny, and growing alignment. Just to bump back in here for a second, that is Andrew Blasey. He is a director at Crowell and Mooring International as well. We asked him into the studio to talk about the primary trends and attitude that we're seeing about China on the Hill and what to expect next year. So let's start with growing focus. Over the past five years, we've seen many members of Congress focus more of their time on U.S.-China relations, chiefly, as one would expect, as due to the result of trade negotiations and the media attention that has followed. Members have also received significant outreach from their constituencies on the topic, and that makes sense. Small businesses, large businesses, farmers, etc., all on a range of China-related issues. Five years ago, it was rare to see a member of Congress assign someone in their office to focus a substantial amount of their time on China matters, and today that's quite commonplace. The second is growing scrutiny. Attitudinal views towards U.S.-China relations have soured in recent years, with increasing scrutiny being applied from partisans and moderates in both political parties. Some members of Congress have even gone so far as to categorize China as an enemy of the United States. The increasing volume of legislation on China that you've referenced is perhaps the greatest indication of heightened scrutiny. This scrutiny takes several forms, including national security, political affairs, and commercial areas. As an example, growing scrutiny by Congress on China has resulted in legislation mandating Chinese companies enhance transparency as a condition for listing on U.S. stock exchanges. We've also seen many members of Congress lash out at U.S. companies with operations in China. The third area, or third trend, of growing alignment. With mutual scrutiny among diverse members of Congress has also come growing alignment on the courses of action the United States should take. While diverse opinions on China still do exist, consensus views are starting to take shape and manifesting themselves in various ways, such as the passage of the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy legislation. Perhaps the greatest variance remains among those advocating a harder line versus those advocating for a more moderate position. Certainly those advocating a harder line have stepped up the introduction of legislation with enhanced media focus, and this can outshine those that may have moderate positions. What do you think it is about China that is causing this alignment? I mean, right now we have some of the highest partisan tension that we've had um, maybe ever, but definitely in several decades. Why China? Sure. So you could look at it in, in two ways. I mean, certainly with the added focus on the trade relationship has come a, a renewed focus on all 
historical U.S.-China areas of, of, of potential challenge, right? But I also think there's a bigger macro trend at play that not only affects the way Congress thinks about China, but also affects the way that, that the administration thinks about China and really, frankly, about how the whole global system is operating, right, especially when it comes to international trade and supply chains. And that's ultimately one of scale. Uh, China has risen dramatically over the past two decades in terms of their overall economic size. And that size, say, relative to the United States, is one that raises um, concerns for many members of Congress for a variety of, of their own uh, various means, right? So, so I think really what it comes down to is a question of scale. And that, of course, has driven attention towards U.S.-China relations as the first and second largest economies. I want to go back to what you said about the trade war. So would you say that when that first tranche of tariffs went into place, do you think that's when the mood toward China began to shift? Was it the 301 investigation? Like, if you had to pinpoint a specific um, instance. In, in the current administration, I would say certainly you, you could find, you could show that interest on China issues really begun to pick up during the 2016 presidential campaign. I would actually say that's the first instance in sort of the modern context with which U.S.-China trade w was put under, under a microscope uh, during that presidential um, election. Uh, but certainly, once President Trump undertook fairly immediate action uh, on, on the U.S.-China economic and commercial relationship, that's when things really came, came into focus. But that was one that was, that was really stepped up over time. Um, ultimately, once trade relations start to impact overall uh, economic growth, uh, and, com and sort of commercial activity, I think that's really where you begun to, to see uh, significant uh, added focus, in particular from the media. So where do you see this evolving? I mean, as we head into phase one and head into an election cycle? We expect the current environment to continue on its trajectory for some time. Uh, members of Congress will likely continue to deploy interchangeable concerns about economics and trade, social matters, and technology issues. Uh, companies should continue to actively monitor and account for future legislative action. Given the significance of the bilateral relationship, though, our hope is that Congress will elevate the sophistication and the sensitivity with which the U.S.-China relationship is approached. Both the U.S. and China would benefit by focusing on areas of collaboration as well as on the important areas of challenge. Do you think China will continue to be a focus into the elections, or will Congress members focus more on the typical bread and butter issues? Yeah, that's a great question. In my view, U.S.-China relations are now a bread and butter issue themselves. itself. The relationship is of such importance. Uh, I do expect China will feature into the 2020 election in a variety of different forms. On the campaign stump, members may praise or discredit the announcement of a phase one trade outcome of course, depending on their party affiliation, as well as the location of their particular constituency. So for example, a Democratic member from an urban center in the United States may have a different spin on the status of U.S.-China relations and U.S. actions to date than, say, a Republican member of Congress from a big agricultural district. Um, and all members of Congress have taken public votes this year on China issues, and you know that obviously can surface on the campaign trail. But let's also keep in mind that the outcomes of the election itself could certainly impact the nature of the discourse between the U.S. and China starting in 2021. So even if the campaign rhetoric doesn't uh, also squarely focus on China per se, the outcome of the election certainly will matter. So if China is now um, a bread and butter issue for Congress, do you see um, room for 
tension between the administration and Congress now that Congress will be playing, you could say, a more active role in foreign policy, at least on China, than they were before? I think it's certainly a possibility, but but ultimately the dynamic here has has changed a bit. I think one way you could you could look at the situation is um, predating the Trump administration versus the situation now. Uh, before the Trump administration took place, we had a situation where there was almost a good cop bad cop dynamic between between the the U.S. and China and the administration relative to Congress, right? But with the administration now taking a harder line on China issues, right? In many ways it sort of moved the Congress to take an even harder line, right? We've seen a shift where that good cop, bad cop dynamic perhaps in previous U.S. administrations um, isn't necessarily in the same form. But time will tell. I think the real answer to your question will be who will occupy the White House starting in 2021? What will the Congress look like? What will the leadership of the political parties be? And who will be in the leadership in the new Congress? All of that will matter a great deal when assessing the dynamics between the two branches of government. So Andrew touched on this at a few points, but we wanted to cover what the practical impact of all this, the legislation and general trends and attitudes towards China on Capitol Hill, has on companies. What relevance does it have? What are companies' biggest concerns? How are they reacting? What is the mood like? So as Shelley and Andrew have already noted, the Hong Kong legislation does not actually fundamentally change U.S. policy. But what it does on a practical operational level for businesses is create long-term uncertainty about the future of Hong Kong's special economic and trade relationship with the United States by mandating the State Department certify annually Hong Kong's autonomy from the mainland. That is China Hawes. She's a government affairs manager here at the U.S.-China Business Council. We sat down with her to get the business perspective on the issue. That just additional bit of business uncertainty is significant for a lot of companies on an operational level. In addition to that, the additional reporting requirements on export controls has the potential to also drive additional legislation that could impact the types of business that companies undertake in Hong Kong. Aside from the legislation, companies are dealing with the ongoing protests and have been significantly impacted in in a variety of ways. Industries Different industries have been impacted in different ways. For instance, tourism and retail have been significantly impacted due to the drop-off in travel, as well as retailers forced to close due to the protests. Uh, However, service industries and other industries that are able to develop more flexible remote work options have found ways to successfully create workarounds that allow further to maintain worker safety and still continue to operate. Beyond this specific piece of legislation, the broader anti-China sentiment in Congress is concerning for a lot of our companies on a variety of levels. While this current Congress has been extremely active on proposing China-related legislation, including over 200 pieces of proposed legislation over the last two years, many of these will not actually become law, but it does underscore the growing concern. And then some areas that actually have practical business impact that we're tracking are uh, telecommunications. There are multiple proposals out there that basically would reinforce what the executive branch is trying to do on safeguarding and shoring up U.S. ICTS, information communications technology and services supply chain from involvement or participation by foreign adversaries that could potentially pose a national security risk. 
this could affect, uh, you know, costs and operational is issues for our companies that cooperate or have partnerships with Chinese ICTS providers. Uh, this a similar issue is being raised in the pharmaceutical realm, where with new legislation being proposed about uh, pharmaceutical supply chain security, because China is the world's largest manufacturer of active pharmaceutical ingredients, which are used to make lots of common drugs, generic drugs, antibiotics, and things like that. Finally, there's also a, several pieces of, of legislation out there that would seek to limit U.S. financial exposure to Chinese capital markets. Right now, it's proposed to reduce the potential risks of federal retirement plans investing in Chinese markets, but there is a potential that this could be expanded to other types of private retirement funds in the future. Again, I'd just like to reiterate that lots of these proposals might not go forward, but as Andrew has noted, there is growing bipartisan alignment and support for increased scrutiny of the U.S.-China economic and commercial relationship that is significantly altering the trajectory of our relationship, and it is something that we will continue to watch. The China Business Review is a production of the U.S.-China Business Council, and you can learn more about our work on our website, uschina.org. If you do like the show, please leave us a rating and review. It will help others find it in the store. Thank you for listening, and we will be back soon.